0: We want to say welcome. We hope that you guys will find community and friends and most importantly, Jesus, and a closer walk with him with your time here at Campus House. Um, Ralph said it, but if you're new here and you want to get connected out both of these doors, there are cards that you can fill out with your email to say, hey, I'm new here, I want to get connected, I want to know somebody or be involved with what's going on here, please fill that out so that we can get in touch with you and help welcome you into the various things that we do here at Campus house. Um, This summer we're spending time in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. These are... uh, really interesting books. They're historical books that look at the life of Israel when they're under the uh, rule of some good kings and some bad kings and mostly bad kings. At this point in Israel's history they're divided into two nations, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is Israel, their capital is Samaria, and they have just terrible terrible leadership most of the time. You have the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital is Jerusalem, both the nations of Israel is called and Israel is called Judah, divided. They had about five hundred They have some good kings and they have some bad kings. And throughout the kings, the book of kings, first and second kings, scripture judges the kings based on whether they were good or bad. there was pretty much one piece of criteria whether they were good kings or bad kings and that is did they lead the nation of Israel towards God or away to false gods what we're looking at today is a period of time when the northern kingdom is certainly leading their uh, people away from God and the southern kingdom has a faithful king but uh, he kind of Screw stuff up. And so what we're looking at is how do we navigate life as God's faithful people when our political leadership is uh, failing and unfaithful? What do we do in light of injustice, of idolatry, of uh, life going poorly from the top? How do we remain faithful uh, as God's people in that situation? And we're following, really, two prophets are kind of the stars of the show. We've got Elijah and Elisha. And we've been looking at Elijah, but he recently dies and passes his uh, mantle on to Elisha. And we get to see the supernatural work of God, but in the context of just this political training This morning, we're going to be looking at two chapters covering five stories, and so that is ambitious. And so we're also going to do that and keep it to a half an hour. And so what that means is that we're not going to dive deep into each story, but we're going to take a survey at a high level to see what's going on, because we can look closely at this, and there are wonderful things that the Lord reveals to us when we look closely at each one of these stories. They're rich and they're full of meaning. We might even look at some of these same ones next week from a different angle and a little bit more deeply. But what we see here is actually a thread of what God is doing over the course of these five stories that I think is instructive to us. And so we're going to try to look at the forest here rather than the trees in this particular case. So I will miss some important things, and so just letting you know up front that there are some good things here that I'm not covering. So I would encourage you guys to go back into the stories, to read them again if you want to, to dive deeper in mind the meaning of it. I'm not trying to be careless in what I'm missing, uh, but we're trying to see some of this powerful truth of what God is revealing as we're going at a high level. We're going to start in 2 Kings 3. We're not going to have slides up today because we're going to be jumping around a little bit. I want you to have the text in front of you. Uh, 2 Kings is about yea far into your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, about a quarter of the way in. Uh, there should. We didn't put Bibles out at the end of the rows. Oh, hey, we've got a stack Bibles <laughs> here like a Bible. Uh, or you know, look on your phone. Digital version. Feel free to help yourself. No one will judge you. Oh, they might judge you. I I won't judge you for getting a Bible. Uh, Alright, we're gonna be looking at 2 Kings 3. And because we're going at a high level here, and then we're going to dive in. we got three kings who are joining together. The evil king from Israel, whose name is um, Jehoram. He's the son of the worst characters to ever reign over Israel uh, Jezebel and Ahab. And uh, the Bible says that uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he didn't do well. Then we have uh, King Jehoshaphat, who is all around a pretty good king uh, from Judah, and we have this unnamed king from Edom, which is a neighboring nation. These three nations decide to join together and go after uh, Moab, which is another nation. So these three nation states decide to get together and go after, attack Moab, because they stopped paying tribute. Joined together, they decided to go out and uh, fight them. They decided to go through the desert. And they didn't consult God if this was a good idea or not. They didn't think to ask him or engage. They just charge out into the desert to invade uh, Moab. And they find themselves in the desert after a roundabout journey of seven days. They're completely out of water. They're in the desert and they're going to die of thirst. Now the king of Israel said, Oh no, the Lord has summoned us three kings, only that be handed over to Moab. But Joseph, Joseph back, the faithful king, says, Is there no prophet of the Lord here whom we may inquire of the Lord? Is there any prophet, is there anyone here that we can inquire about and say, What in the world is going on, and can you save us? And one of the servants of the king said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, used to pour water on the hands of Elijah Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to your father's prophets or to your mothers." He's saying, go to the false gods who your mother and father served. Why are you coming to me? You haven't paid any attention to the Lord so far. Why would you come to me? No, but the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has summoned us here, only to be handed over to Moab. As the Lord of hosts lives, whom I serve, Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, whom I serve, were it not that I have regard for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would give neither a look nor a glance, but bring me a musician. So then he prophesies and says, Thus says the Lord, I will make this wadi full of for thus says the Lord, you shall neither see wind nor rain, but the body shall be filled with water, the brook shall be filled with water, so that you can drink, and your cattle and your animals. But this is only a little trifle in the sight of the Lord. For he will also hand Moab over to you. You shall conquer every fortified city, every choice city, every good tree will fall down, every spring of water will stop up, every good piece of land will run the snow. The next day, about the time of the morning offering, suddenly water began to flow from the direction of So the country was filled with water. An interesting thing here, Egypt and these nations decide to run off on their own to go raiding in Moab, to take over this other country, to bring them back into submission. Uh, They don't seek the Lord. They're about to die. They finally seek the Lord and say, Lord, would you provide some water? What are you going to do here? He says, hey, it's easy for me to provide water in the desert, even though you foolishly struck off on your own to do this in rebellion to me, it's easy to provide water in the desert. In fact, I can even hand you victory over your enemy. So this is interesting. What we see here is that in the face of even our own screw-ups, our own uh, will apart from God, to venture off and to do whatever we think is right in our own eyes, God actually can interrupt and save us when we find ourselves in a desert apart from him. We then see in the rest of chapter 3 that Israel goes in and everything that the Lord said starts to happen. They are victorious over Moab. They go into this into their territory. They uh, just are victorious all the way up until this very interesting thing happens. They surround the final city. that The king is in this final city. Um, they surrounded them with stone slingers, they're about to close in and just win complete victory like God had promised them. And then the king of Moab, this is 3:26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So he tried to bust out of his city with his crack team of special forces. That failed, so what he did then is he took his firstborn son, who was going to succeed, offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. So he couldn't break through. He was about to be destroyed. And so he offered his firstborn son as a burnt offering on the wall. As this great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This is intense. This pagan king Decides to make an offering to his false god he burns his son on the wall it says great wrath came upon Israel so they withdrew from the land and returned to their own land this is a really challenging statement this is a really confusing text what happens here I think what happens here is that this king makes a sacrifice of his son curses Israel and challenges the promise of God. And Israel does not challenge that curse back. They retreat and withdraw because of the evil that they witness. What's interesting is that we see a contrast here between the one true God Between this false god, Shema, was the name. What does the Lord require of his people to bring about the victory that he promised? What did the Lord require? The Lord required something to be sought. He says, come to me and believe me and you will have victory. What does the enemy, this false god, say? He says, sacrifice your son then will bring destruction on your adversary. There's an interesting principle that's in play here. John 10 tells us, John 10.10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That whenever we see the enemy, when we see Satan at work in the world, he comes to kill, he comes to steal, and he comes to destroy. Even the promises of pleasure or victory or power comes with the price of death and destruction and theft. We see that here where this man, in an act of desperation, murders his own son to save his own neck. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We have a contrast that is struck here between the enemy that requires payment, that would have people kill their own children, and a God who comes to bring life and bring it abundantly, who lays down, willingly lays down his own life to bring life and salvation. What, who God is. We have four stories here where again we're facing death and destruction. 2 Kings 4 says, Now the wife of a member of the company of prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to slavery. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Let me just pause here real quick. What we see here is a killed father. We see children about to be stolen by creditors and put into slavery. We see stealing, we see death, and we see a family that is about to be destroyed. We see the work of the enemy. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? She answered, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. He said, go outside, borrow vessels from your neighbors, empty vessels, and not just a few. Then go in and shut the door behind you, your children, and start pouring into all these vessels. When each is full, set it aside. So she left them, she shut the door behind her, and her children, they kept bringing vessels to her, and she kept pouring the oil. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. He said to her, There are no more, and the new oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your children can live on the rest. You see a wife and her children about to be destroyed in the midst of mourning, great mourning, and peril. And she sought the Lord through Elisha. This is what he did back in the day. Everybody didn't have the Holy Spirit. He sought the Lord through God's prophet. And he delivered. Deliverance through the supernatural miracle of a jar of oil being poured out. And it demonstrates God's abundance, not only that he was able to redeem them from slavery, Save them from the debt that they owed, but provide enough oil that they can sell it and live on the rest. Go sell the oil, pay your debt, and your children can live on the rest. See, in the midst of peril, she put her trust in God and sought Him, and He delivered not only deliverance from the debt that they owed, but also. An abundant life. You see it again. We get uh, the story of Elisha and this woman. Uh, I this is a longer story. And what we see here is almost like a day in the life of a prophet. We see the life of Elisha as he walks around to and fro day by day. Um, this wealthy woman notices him walk by, invites him for a meal, and then they start dining together regularly. She and her husband decide to build a room and wall for Elisha to live in so that he can go and stay there when he's passing by. Elisha decides that he wants to do something nice for the woman, and uh, she said, I don't really need anything. He noticed that she didn't have a son, which was really important in this culture, and so he says, um, in 415... He said that her called her, and when he had called her, she stood at the door, he said, this season, in due time, you shall embrace a son. And she replied, no, my Lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. It was too much for her to handle. And the woman conceived bore a son in that due time, Elisha made a promise to her that he was, that the Lord would give her a son that she hasn't been able to have. That promise was fulfilled, when that child was older, he went out one day to his father, one the his father on my head, my head, to he called his mother, and went in, and laid the boy on his mother's lap, and the child sat there until he and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and closed the door, and laughed. Called her husband and said, send one of the servants and one of the donkeys, so that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back. She said, why are you going today? It's either a new moon or a Sabbath. She said, it will be all right. She saddled the donkey said to her servant, Where is the animal on and do not hold back? Unless I tell you she set out and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. She went and sought the Lord in the midst of her distress. When the man of God saw her coming. He sent the servant down. But look, there is a shoe woman run wants once a meter and say, Are you alright? Is your husband alright? Is your child alright? She answered, It's alright. When she came to the man of God at the mountain, she didn't want to answer the servant. Talk to Elisha directly. She caught hold of Elisha's feet. Gehazi, the servant, approached to push her away with man. God said, let her alone, for she is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not mislead me? And he sent his the servant then down to raise the child from the dead. And the child did not raise from the dead, so Elisha himself went Went into the house and he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went in and closed the door. And he prayed to the Lord and then he got on the bed and he lay upon the child and he put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And while he lay bent over him, and the flesh of the child became warm. He got down and he walked to and fro in the room and then he got up again and bent over him and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Elisha summoned house and said, follow wash you to my woman. So he called her she came in and he said, take your son. And she came in and fell at his feet, bound to the ground. And she took her son and left. Here we see a promise of God to this woman. This just excess grace to bring a child to a mother who desperately wanted one. And we see death come to try and steal this child away from her. We see when that child is threatened. Promise is threatened when this child lies dead. She turns to the Lord. I think God, I think God raises this child from the dead. You see the promise tried to be stolen. The child tried to be killed. The mom tried to be destroyed. So what do we see in these two stories? contrast between the kingdom of darkness that seeks to kill and steal and destroy. We see the kingdom of God, which is about life and life abundantly. We see a demonstration of God's kingdom, His power and purposes. We see a demonstration of life and the abundant life that God promises His children you see God's faithfulness in this story as the Lord sought them in difficult circumstances. Every difficult circumstance doesn't go well. Jesus tells us later in the New Testament that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have come overcome the world. None of our lives will be free from trouble, pain, Persecution and loss. But we have a greater promise that is found in Jesus. And we can trust him. So these stories all point to Jesus. They all point to God's heart and his kingdom. And what his ultimate purposes are. Even as Israel is wandering around the desert with these unfaithful kings. Set off on their own not really even seeking the Lord. They find themselves in a perilous situation. They find themselves in a desert dying of thirst. We see God break in when they sought Him to bring water to the deserts, to bring water to the thirsty. You see, this foreshadows Jesus' promise John 7.37, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scriptures have said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he says this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive. But when we find ourselves apart from God, off on our own, dying in the desert, facing difficulty. Turn to the Lord and that He can provide for us in the desert. Isaiah 61. Jesus stood up, and this is the verse that He, he declared when He was uh, launching His ministry. He said, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives the least of the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called Moses of righteousness in the planting of the Lord to display His glory look to the Lord for His promises in the midst of our destruction, in the midst of our death, in the midst of challenged promises, in the midst in the face of certain destruction, we look to the Lord whose promises are good. Who promises a resurrection life for us. Promises of life and life abundantly instead of death and death. All of his promises are yes and amen. The reality is is that in this life, we won't get the fullness of each of these promises. Everything that we saw demonstrated here is miraculous, is powerful, and is amazing. And it demonstrates what God's heart is. And sometimes we get the tangible deliverance from the difficulty that we're facing. Sometimes the sick are healed. Sometimes the dead are raised. Sometimes the supernatural provision shows up now, already in this life, in this moment, as we are hurting and longing and needing. But we live in this tension of the times where Jesus has come and He has defeated evil on the cross, and he has set us free from sin and death, and yet we sit here and we yearn for the return of our God. We yearn for, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because we do not get the fullness of all the promises now. There is still death. There is still sin. There is still suffering. There is still injustice. There is still racism. There is still slavery. There is still untimely death last enemy to be defeated, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be defeated is death, and death is still at work. And so we long and pray, Lord Jesus, come, but as in that longing for Lord Jesus, come, come back, set this to rights, end the evil, shut down the persecution, shut down the suffering, I mean, this week I just read about 3,000 Nigerians that are Christians who are displaced because their villages have been burned and they have been executed by these roaming Kurdsmen. In our community, at my parents' church, a beautiful family that is a vibrant part of the community, their son was just killed in a horrific car accident. Their 15-year-old son. As we're wrestling with this text, we see there is still suffering. There's so much injustice in this world, in our country. And in this world, there is injustice and there is suffering. And so we wait with expectation to say, Lord, come and set this right. But what we can do now is we can now live in the promises that He has made us. That Jesus is actually sufficient to meet all of our needs. That Jesus' death on the cross actually frees us from sin. It frees us from the penalty, and it frees us from the control of sin. That we no longer have to be subject to sin in our lives because of Jesus' death on the cross. His death was efficient to break us free. And to forgive us in the sight of God so that we can be clean in front of Him. His resurrection overcame the power of the grave. We can live in this promise in John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That when we are with Jesus, even if our earthly bodies stop working, we will never die. That we long for death to ultimately be defeated. But we can live in the life that Jesus died to give us now. We can live in the abundant life that he has given us now that thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus lays down his life for us. Crying this is water to the thirsty. And that promise is for now. He has died and resurrected. The Holy Spirit is here for us. His word is here for us to satiate and satisfy our souls. We can walk in the newness of life that is offered by God. <clears throat> the oil of gladness instead of mourning is for now. In the midst of our mourning, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of the sadness and peril of life, Jesus is present, God is near to the brokenhearted. hearted. He draws near to us. The resurrection life is available now. When we place our trust in Jesus, His resurrection life is available for us now. So what do we do with this? What does this mean for our actual life? What does this mean for today? Well, it means that when we find ourselves in a mess of our own making, if we have charged out into the desert on our own, if we're in cahoots with unrighteous people, if we are in the midst of suffering and dying because we have made a mistake and gone off on an adventure without seeking the Lord first, and we find ourselves far from Him and close to death, it means that He isn't here. And He can bring water in the desert. We can repent. We can turn from going our own ways seek the Lord. Maybe we're in the midst of an attack from the enemy, where the promises over our lives are challenged, where we feel like we're not going to live into the best thing that he has called us for, that we are not living out the good works that he has laid beforehand to be our way of life, that we are spinning our tires in the mud, that the promises he has made to us are facing attack. All the promises in Jesus are yes and amen, that we can turn back to the Lord Maybe we find ourselves in the midst of severe loss today. Affected by the pain of this world. The answer is Jesus. To seek Him. To draw near to Him. To allow Him to be the comforter. The support and care for us. Maybe we find ourselves in circumstances that are completely out of our We feel like we're just spinning and reeling. Or the life that we felt like we were promised, the job we thought was going to be fruitful is now just a terrible. turning in repentance and coming back to me and it resting is your salvation. You see, in every one of these stories, where salvation was found was in turning to the Lord. And it is the same for us in returning to the Lord and stopping from charging off on our own and doing our own thing and turning back around and seeking the Lord. That is where our salvation is. And resting from our own striving and work, that is where our salvation is. And quietness and trust is where our strength is. And listening to the Lord. Believing him. Doing what he says is where we find our strength.